0: Leadership, purpose, service. This is Fulfilling the Dream with Wayman Brett. Your path to greatness is not simply paved with the grinding feet of persistence. Through motivating stories and personal testimonials, gain the insight you need to overcome life's biggest challenges and break through those barriers that hinder you. So when opportunity knocks at your door, you'll be ready. Welcome. Fulfilling the dream.
1: Well, good day and good afternoon to everybody that's out there in podcast land. Again, we're hoping for an interesting conversation today with a with a gentleman that uh, really needs no introduction. Introduction. His name is Bob Woodson. He is the founder and president of the Woodson Center and also seventy. 1776 Unites, and Voices of Black Mothers United. Bob is uh, frequently featured on many um, uh, outlets, C-SPAN, CNN, Meet the Press. Um, He's contributed to The Hill, The Washington Washington Examiner, uh, and um, has just received a number of awards. He's written several books. Uh, one that I'm really fond of uh, uh, fond of, and uh, looking forward to his discussion today about the book called Lessons from the Least of These, uh, The Woodson Principles. And I got a chance to meet Bob when he was here in Grand Rapids, Michigan a few months ago at the Ford Foundation where he and other guests were here talking about the work that we're doing in in grassroots uh, community and what they were doing to change the game and what they were doing to uplift people and to improve their opportunities in, in our communities. And I just fell in love with him. so since that time I visited Bob in Washington, D.C., my wife and I visited with him and uh, he, he granted me the opportunity to interview him today on the podcast show. So I'm, I'm so thrilled, Bob, how are you today? Oh, I'm just fine.
2: Every day is a good day for me.
1: Uh, uh huh. So, are you in, enjoying the spring weather in in Washington D.C.
2: and Yes, sir. Uh, hopefully- finally, it's yeah. finally it's gotten here. So I'm uh, I, I'm really enjoying. It. This is a great time of year. You
1: know, yeah. People
2: are and despairing, I, but I, I don't. Well, you know your whole
1: your whole track record. You seem like you never despair, and uh, we have. Uh, I have just fallen in love with the work that you're doing. And looking forward to what you have to say about uh, your book, Um, and um, so Bob, let's let's start out. uh, Give us some background. You grew up in Philadelphia, I believe, and uh, could you give us some of the background you're growing up in in Philadelphia in
2: the 1960s? Well, I I uh, was born in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, during the Depression, uh, 1937, and it's a low income uh blue collar uh, black neighborhood as i said um before 98% of the households had a man and a woman raising children the elderly people could walk safely in those communities without fear of being assaulted by their grandchildren i never heard a gun fired one time never heard of children being murdered in their cribs uh so even though we were living in tough times in segregated Philadelphia, as it was throughout the country, the community that we were in was a faith community. Everybody, even if you didn't go to church, you pretended to be a Christian. <laughs> uh, and so we had solid, uh, solid relationships there. In fact, the studies that we have done uh, reveals that Uh, even though Black communities uh, were—that racism was enshrined in law, we had no political representation, that we were in the grips of a depression. But during the 10 years of that depression, between 1930 and 1940, the Black community had the highest marriage rate of any group in society. And so— uh, all my life, I've grown up around resilience and perseverance against great odds. Mm-hmm. Um, and my dad uh, died when I was nine, even my mother with a fifth grade education and five children to raise, which gave me, which means that I had to cleave to my peers. There's a group of five, six fellas. We called ourselves the fellas. Mm-hmm. And so I understand why children join gangs. Because when you don't have the nuclear family, or your dad is missing, you need some kind of uh, alternative support. Fortunately, my mother equipped me with the kind of values that I chose good friends. Yeah, there are three of us still alive today, and and so I it gave me a, a, a an understanding of why young men who are uh, who are aimless what it takes for young men to survive uh, being coming from a single health house, parent household, coming from a low income neighborhood. Uh, and so it was, it was my response to that. They were a year older than me. And so when they graduated, I was unaffiliated. Yeah. And so I quit high school in uh, at 17 and went into the military at a time in found myself uh, in Mississippi in a training base and, which exposed me for raw racism. <laughs> and then after completing flight training there, I went to the missile base in Florida again. Uh, and I finished my high school training through a GED program. And I had took some college courses in math. So I have 12 credits from the University of Miami when I was in the military at a time when i couldn't walk on the campus.
1: <laughs> wow. 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 How did you get through all of that, Bob? I mean, what what was uh what was the determining factor for
2: you to rising above all of that back in the uh, day? You know, what I, were the lessons? Uh, well, one of the fundamental lessons that i had to learn early is when when again as i told you I was 17 when I quit high school. I was just three months into my 17th birthday. I quit high school, the first time that I'd ever really traveled out of the city. Uh, and I'm suddenly thrown with people from different backgrounds. My first southern accent, I'm meeting a German youth, a guy who was in Hitler youth. I met a Jewish guy whose parents perished in the Holocaust. So I'm thrown together with people I never thought I would. This is funny, though, but when I went into the military, I believed that black people were a majority in America. <laughs> wow. <laughs> because of where you grew up. Because all I saw were black yeah. folks. and So suddenly yeah. I'm going into we'll the military, there are 400 being inducted oh. in a week, and we're only about 10 to 8% of the population. My flight was 80 people and only five blacks. So wow. that was a cultural shock for me. Yeah. It was a shock. But the lessons in that, and I'll get to this, is that when I came home on leave for the first time uh, from Florida, I uh, came on the train and I spent all my money, partied up my money. And I went to my mother uh, the Friday morning. I was supposed to be back in base on Monday. And I said, I need car fare back to the base. She said, how did you get here? And I told her, she said, then you need to get back the best way you can. <laughs> I was very bitter, but guess what? It took me two days to hitchhike a thousand miles. Wow wow. <laughs> and I was bitter <laughs> at her for four days for four months. But that was a very profound lesson that your destiny is determined by what you do, and you cannot yeah. depend on anyone else to rescue you from your foolish decisions. Yeah.
1: Yeah. You have uh hit on something that's in your book that I, I pulled out. And uh, uh, when you wrote the book lessons from the least of these, what was the, what prompted that book? What, what, uh, why did you write it and uh, what was on your heart and mind at the time?
2: Because I really believe that, uh, you know, the, um the character of a nation or even a, an individual or an organization is determined by how we treat the least of god's children mm, and amen. when i look at how we have treated poor people in the in this country that we have we have parachuted into their communities remedies coming from the outside that's what happened on the poverty programs we mm. created a commodity out of poor people We saw poverty, and what we did was we spent $22 trillion on poverty in the last 60 years. Mm -hmm. Seventy cents of every one of those dollars didn't go to the poor, but those who who served the poor. And they asked not which problems are solvable, but which ones are fundable. So if you're – and most of those were trained professionals from our universities, we would parachute into these – communities, programs designed by outsiders that were motivated by what they could get funded, not which problems could they solve. And so it didn't matter whether the intervention coming from on high was from the left or the right. Hmm. Uh, Secretary Bill Bennett characterized, he said, when people on the left see poor people, they see a sea of victims, and people on the right see a sea of aliens. (laughs) Wow. And so I realized that the real solutions to poverty cannot be found by looking to people on the right or the left, and that the poverty programs that have parachuted into all these professionals has done more to destroy the institutions that are in these communities that have served them over the decades. And, and so uh, what I try to do is flip the script to, to look for a different source for solutions to the problems of poverty by going among the people suffering the problem. Yeah. All of the answers to poverty are contained within the community suffering the problem. If only we can go in, as I did, and the organization to, to go in, if we say for instance that 70% of the black households in our cities, urban centers, are mm-hmm. raising children that are dropping out of school or in jail and on drugs, it means 30% are mm-hmm. not. No one ever mm-hmm. goes into the 30% of the households to find out what is it that is being done there that causes people to achieve against the odds. And so that's what my book my book describes the process of of looking at low income communities through the prism of the glass is half full as opposed to the glass is half empty. Yeah. So so we have found solutions. Um and we also, Wayman, apply the principles that operate in the market economy. In our market economy, only 3% of the people are entrepreneurs, but they generate 70% of the jobs. Hmm, that's true. And entrepreneurs, according to David Birch at MIT, entrepreneurs tend to be C students, not A students. Yeah, the A students come back and teach, C students endow. Hmm. Or as A.D. Gaston, one of my favorite, he's a, Alabama's first black millionaire. He had Mm -hmm. a sixth-grade education. He said, it's better to say I is rich than I am poor. (laughs) (laughs) And so I use that analogy, but it only takes a small number of social entrepreneurs in communities that have developed unique ways of addressing poverty. And if you go in and look for that small cohort of people who are The social entrepreneurs, and we do what the marketplace does. Is a venture capitalist brings not only money but also managerial expertise, so that a business that starts in someone's garage ends up becoming a Fortune 500 company. Well, we need Mm -hmm. to follow the same trajectory when we're intervening in a social economy by taking a few people who have demonstrated that they have solutions provide them with money, but also managerial support so that they can grow from helping 10 people to 100 people and from yeah. there to 1,000. And so that's kind of been the approach that I have taken. Uh, in, in, and I've, So I wrote about those 10 principles that help guide people when they're looking for solutions among the people so experiencing the problem. Yeah. And you talk in the book about um,
1: the excuses that we make and sometimes, and that's one of my pet peeves is uh, often we always look to find solutions uh, outside of ourselves and we don't look internally. And you talk about that in the book a lot about looking inside a community. And, and I think that's one of our downfalls. We, we oftentimes are looking elsewhere instead of looking at what we can do for ourselves. And. Yeah. So we're at a crossroads, I
2: believe, and then you believe. No, but you are, we are at a crossroads um, in that we're we're looking in the wrong places for the right answers. Hmm. And so what I'm trying to do is guide people to that there's that elitism is the biggest barrier that we have to solution. Hmm. We have this assumption that only smart people have the answers to the problem. Hmm. And that if someone is untutored, they're unwise. That And so that's the biggest barrier. There is a uh, an, an economist, James C. Scott. He wrote a book called Seeing Like a State. He says there are two types of knowledge. There's episteme knowledge, which is hmm. knowledge that you can teach in a classroom. And then there's yeah. metis knowledge. Which is common sense knowledge. Metis uh, epistemy knowledge is something you can teach somebody to maneuver a, a a a ship across an ocean. You can teach that in the classroom. Yeah. But once that ship gets to the harbor of Baltimore or New York or Philadelphia, the captain turns it over to a harbor master, <laughs> and that is a local captain that has equipped with meetest knowledge. There's no textbooks on, on the Boston uh, or the Baltimore Harbor. It's only by common experience, common sense experience, and he knows where all the jetties are and where all, and so that captain turns it over. But low-income people are like harbor masters. They know their community. The harbor master in Baltimore may not know how to maneuver a ship into the New York harbor, and so grassroots leaders are harbor masters. They know their community. They have established bonds of trust with people who are in crisis, yeah. and they are able to harvest that trust to come up with unique ways of challenging people to change. Yeah.
1: Yeah, you know, Bob. I remember when I was working on a project, and uh, we were attempting to build the human services complex here in in our community. And uh, we found out that the people in the community did have the answers. We pulled them together, and they f- helped us to figure out how do we supplant this 133,000 square foot facility that was going to help people. And I'm proud to say that it all worked out good, and we have, um, I think, remedied a lot of problems. We're going to push that 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 support out of the community, and, and I'm glad we were able to figure it out, but they had the solutions right there. You're absolutely right. We listened to them, and uh, fulfilling the dream, you know, for me is about finding these gifted leaders that are in our communities and in our past that we can draw upon inspiration from, and I believe you're one of those people. Martin Luther King is one of those people, And and I wonder, Bob, could you talk about your vision for the Woodson Center and how it mirrors Dr. King's dream. And and, and, and are they the same? Is it, because I, I wonder sometimes with, and I've listened to you before, are we saying the same thing today as he was back when he was pushing for change and dealing with poverty issues
2: and so forth? Could you enlighten us on that? You know, uh, one of my young colleagues, Delano Squires, I think summarized what the challenges that we face today when he says this whole race grievance issue and the demonization of American values is really coming from a small minority of people. They're, on the one side, they're guilty white progressives who are seeking absolution from crimes they never committed. Mm -hmm. And entitled rich blacks, well-educated, who are seeking absolution from injustice they never suffered. (laughs) And Mm -hmm. there are two types of people engaged in this attack on the fundamental values of the country. There are those that are ill-informed and those that are ill-intentioned. I start from the premise that most people are ill-informed, and therefore, if you just give them the right information, then they will change and migrate over to supporting these principles. Uh, and And that's why we wrote the book 1776 Unites, to counter 1619 to provide people with an accurate accounting of history, to challenge the fundamental assaults on our values as a nation. The progressives are saying because America uh, had slavery, Mm -hmm. that is to be forever defined by the sins of our past. Hmm. And therefore, that's where they stop. And they use the rich legacy of the civil rights movement and 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 the history and America's birth defect of slavery as a bludgeon against the country. Hmm. And, and and they're and they they're misappropriating the civil rights uh, 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 mor- moral authority. Yeah, you saw this in 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 uh, Minnesota with George Floyd. They yes. went in under the banner of seeking justice for blacks, and the first thing they do was burn the flag and burn the Bible. And, and and conflate injustice against Black with injustice against gays uh, and, and women and everything else, as if those other groups wore the crown of thorns that Blacks did. Hmm. And so what we did was, again, publish this, uh, this book, Red, White, and Black, and we developed school curriculum from it that has been downloaded, Wayman, eighty six thousand downloads we've had in a year your curriculum and wow eighty six thousand downloads in every state so people are desperate to get accurate information and that's why I think the majority are just ill informed that once they yeah. are informed they will migrate to support the values of this nation and 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 again go back to judging people not by the by the color of their skin or their sexual orientation, but by the content of their character,
1: yeah, this nation is our nation, and you you talk about that, and we 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 should take pride in our in our history and and, and the founding of this country it's it just it was founded with the principles that all men should be created equal. and that's what Martin Luther King believed in, and that's what you believe in. and but that gets mis misplaced. It uh, for some reason, we think that uh, there are two countries. And I find myself at times just so, I guess confused and bothered about the fact that you know we have two sides of this, this story, and it should be one story. and uh, i'm I'm glad to hear you talk about that. Talk to us more about 1776 and, and the work that you're doing, uh, trying to, uh, I believe, uh, share more essays and information with people about the founding of our country and how we how we should should view ourselves and history of this country. Yeah,
2: you see, the progressive left is uh, propagating this lie. That the problems about a wit birth and violence that you see in black communities is a direct legacy of slavery in Jim Crow. Mm-hmm. That is just patently untrue. And so our essays, we went back into our history to find out well, what 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 was Black America's response to slavery and discrimination? Our response wasn't to be a victim that following the Civil War, when I, we looked at the state of the Black family. So mm. one of our scholars looked at the records of six major plantations to determine what was the state of the Black family. 75% of those children were living with a man and a woman. 75%. So the nuclear family was critical to Black resistance to slavery. Yeah, And for 100 years, the black family uh, prevailed and was the primary uh, uh, institution that held us together. Mm-hmm. Only 10% were literate, and yet mm-hmm. our, our churches on set up Sabbath schools, and we were able to increase the literacy rate in 40 years from 10% to 70%. Yeah. And there were 20 blacks who were born slaves who died millionaires. One of them actually went back and purchased a plantation on which he was a slave and took in the destitute family of the slave master in an act mm-hmm. of what I call radical grace. So these, 1776 is, is just celebrating the rich history uh, of how blacks achieved in the face of oppression and Jim Crow.
1: Yeah, so Bob, talk to us about the Jim Crow era, and because because I, I agree with everything you've said, but I think the question for for some are going to be, well, slavery ended, but then Jim Crow came in, and it did undermine the opportunities for African Americans to succeed in, in in especially in the South, but some of it was actually going on in the North. Could you talk about that so so people can understand? Even even during Jim Crow, uh, people did not make an excuse, and they were able to overcome even even the onslaught of, of that ridiculous uh, era that we lived through.
2: You know uh, that it is a fact that the sickest part of the body attracts the largest number of antibodies. <laughs> that's just a fact of life. And it's the same in segregation. When, when government was hostile to us, we had to turn to ourselves. So when Blacks were denied access to hotels and inns, we built our own. Every major city had a hotel. It was the Wawahajee, uh in, in Atlanta, the Carver Hotel, and Calvert Hotel in Overtown, Miami. It was a St. Teresa in New York, the St. Charles in Chicago. I could go on and on. When we were denied access to schools, we built 5,000 Rosenwald-Bukertie schools. And as a consequence, we closed the education gap between 1920 and 1940 from three years to six months. In, in, in places like Chicago, in 1929, when we were denied access, we were redlined. We went to our churches, with burial societies, and took that capital and built seven hundred and thirty-one black-owned businesses in just the Bronzeville section of Chicago. We had a hundred wow. million in real estate assets. Wow! We, we had our own railroad. How many people know that blacks started their own railroad in Baltimore in 1668, when a Not thousand many, bla- sure. blacks were fired? We didn't whine and complain. What we did was borrow ten thousand dollars and successfully operated our own railroad that went from Baltimore to Maine for eighteen years. So there is and, a there is a rich riches. We had uh, golf clubs, yeah, country clubs. I can go on each of uh, your, your own uh, our own banks. Insurance companies, our own universities, our own medical schools. So, in some ways, uh, segregation ended,
1: and and uh, you know, part of Jim Crow was segregation of schools. And I think that maybe, perhaps, that that hindered some of what you you've just talked about—the fact that when we had the nucleus of of that those schools that had teachers and principals who were look look like me and you. They were oftentimes uh, the the heroes, the mentors that really cared and were able to help us, uh, in fact, find our way. And unfortunately, today we we we've uh, I think that that we've lost that.
2: Um, You're right. You know, we were better off the first fifty years uh, of this century, from the turn of the century up until 1960. We were better off than we are in the last. 50 years. Hmm. Think about this. More blacks killed other blacks in one year over the last 10 years than the Klan killed in 40 years. One year. We have a 9-11 every six months. And the president of the United States is going to stand up at Howard University and declare that, white supremacy is the biggest threat that we have yeah when just this past weekend or mother's day weekend 16 blacks were shot seven children a 10-year-old girl was shot coming home from her with her her siblings and her parents coming home from a mother's day celebration she was shot and now is in critical condition mm. we mm. never had this kind of challenge in, inside where we've been so detached from our values that we devalue our life. America is in a moral and spiritual crisis, and, and it is not racial. We have a grace problem, not a race problem. Hmm. So, Bob, how do we change
1: that in the minds of, of our president and, and for all of the leaders that are in a position to lead and to change things, to make community uh, either better to make our economy better, what do we do to 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 get them to listen to that? I mean, I I, I think uh, unfortunately, I think sometimes people are just not informed. You talked about that. So how do we get them to
2: be more informed? What what do we got to do? Well, we got to do more than just whine about what the other side is doing, yeah, <laughs> and writing papers about it and complaining. Yeah. What we've got to do is we have to to hold up examples of how old values are being applied in our present situation. There are, there are social entrepreneurs, there are grassroots leaders in every community that have that spark of, of, uh, of, 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 of entrepreneurship. They have the trust and confidence of other people. We need to take what is happening in our communities that is working. And we need to invest in it the way we did back then. If we were able to achieve in the face of segregation and Jim Crow, we need to go back and be inspired by what was done back in in those times, and find their counterpart that today. Yeah. If your if your viewers could go into sixty minutes, go mm-hmm. into YouTube and type in, Bertha Gilkey, 60 Minutes. Okay. This is a group we, we work with in St. Louis that mm-hmm. took a public housing project that was overrun with drug addicts and violence, gangmen, and the residents took charge of it themselves and established their own resident management corporation and drove the drug dealers out and rebuilt it. It was so peaceful. That market-rate housing was built right across the street from it. Wow, that's amazing. And and there's another video we have at the Woodson Center. The same thing was done in Washington, D.C., where a 680-unit public housing project sent over 900 kids to college and eliminated teen pregnancy. Mm -hmm. We really need to study the success Mm -hmm. that is among us right now Mm -hmm. to find out how can we take – what has been done on a small scale mm-hmm. and invest in it so that we began to expand it, uh, islands of, of excellence and expand it out. Well, And then educate
1: people about what those excellence uh, uh, are, where they are and, and, and to do more of that. And I agree with that wholeheartedly. You only, you know, you're only as smart as, uh, you know, uh, the information that you have in front of you. I mean, if you don't know, then what happens a lot of times people make decisions, they go off on different tracks. And they don't even know that, uh, they're losing the war and they're losing ground. They're not solving the problem at all. And, uh, you've, you've figured it out, Bob. I think that we need to hear more of what you've, your recipe, uh, for changing America today. And, uh, you know, so how do we how do we get along with that? How do you how do we manifest more of what you're you're thinking and what you're doing? I mean, you're you're in Washington DC, right? Yeah. You're not here
2: in, in Michigan. So what do we do? Well we're all over the country. We have we have uh, about three thousand grassroots groups leaders in thirty nine states that are part of our network and they are created small they're black, they're white, they're Native American. In all of the 43 years that I've run the center, we've had conferences and retreats. Racial animus never came up one time, Mm -hmm. not once at our gatherings. Why? Because people who are really living in challenging communities, who are struggling with overcoming brokenness in their lives, they are not concerned about racism or anything else. They just want to know. How can I overcome this brokenness in my life?
1: Yeah,
2: and, mm-hmm. and so um, that's why we're working with Pepperdine University to establish the Center for the Study of Resilience. I we see. just need we just need to to like Jesus did when he was on his way to the home of Cyrus mm-hmm. because his thirteen year old daughter had died. Mm-hmm. But when he got to the door, there were mourners who get paid to mourn. So they had no interest in him coming. (laughs) And there were other naysayers who said to him, Oh, she's dead. Why are you gonna waste your time? The first thing Jesus did say, get these naysayers out the way. So the first thing you gotta do is get criticism is healthy, cynicism is destructive. And so you first gotta rid yourself of relationships that are cynical, and surround yourself with people who are hopeful. And also you should look for examples of people who are achieving against the odds. This mom that I I read about, who raised two daughters in a homeless shelter for three years, they were sleeping in her car and sleeping in homeless shelters. The kids were studying by the light of her cell phone and wow. they graduated and went to Spelman as sophomores because one graduated uh, valedictorian, the other salutatorian, and, and they started Spelman as sophomores because they took so many advanced placement courses. That mother and those girls need to be celebrated. Yes, We need to—scholars ought to be interviewing them, dissecting, learning from— and there are other examples that 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 are out there where people are achieving against the odds. But wow. but you've got to look for them. If you if if but you've got to look for them. You got to be, first of all you got to believe that they exist. Yeah. And then we do. Why not? Why don't they honor that banquets that we have? Mm. Instead of just mm. celebrating somebody with a PhD who has written a book mm. about something, why can't we celebrate the accomplishments of ordinary people? Mm. Hmm. What we did for seven wow. years is we had what we call achievement against the odds. We went all over the country looking for people who have achieved against the odds. We would identify 200 and then screen down to seven. And then I was sent a videographer to spend a day with each of them. And then we invite their families to a big banquet in D.C. Mm -hmm. And then all night we would feature what they did. We called it Low Income Oscars Night. (laughs) That's a a catchy title. And and we have about 50 of these uh, video essays that goes into laborious details about how people achieved, and why they achieved, and what lessons can we learn from that. So we now want Bob, to do that again.
1: Yeah. So, Bob, some of these stories that you're talking about can be found at the Woodson Center. You have yes, a library. Yeah, they can be some found at
2: the, you know, on our website. Uh, we have examples of people who are achieved against their odds. We are working with Pepperdine right now so that scholars and students well into the future, we'll begin a whole new course of study, and that is there's, there's nobody right or left of center that ever writes constructively about what low-income people are doing mm-hmm. to help themselves. There's no mm-hmm. place you can go to get that kind of information, but we want mm-hmm. to start a whole new discipline.
1: Well, wow. and and uh, so. Pepperdine is the organization that's going to help you
2: to do that. Pepperdine, Pepperdine University uh, is working with us. Dean uh, Pete Peterson is working with us. They've agreed to, to house our archives. In fact, all of our physical assets are, have been digitized, and they're on their way to Pepperdine so that students well into the future will be able to—so we have to persuade funders, to to fund our grassroots Josephs, the people living in these communities. They yeah. they deserve to get funded. We're going to spend hundreds of billions of dollars on political campaigns. Hmm. They're going to spend money, everybody on the right of centers against big government, but they're going to spend big billions of dollars getting people elected to big government.
1: Wow. Man, you have you have nailed so many questions I have had. I have just uh, been blessed with listening to uh, to all of these uh these kernels of wisdom today and I don't, I don't know if I've ever listened to anybody quite like you before Bob and uh what what a true gem you are and I just want to thank you uh, for everything you've shared and you got a, just a couple more questions. What 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 would you want your family or your children or your community to say about you? And what would you want them to remember about you as a person, as a, and as a leader?
2: That's a that's an interesting question. That that I believe that everybody has a God-given capacity to be agents of their own uplift. That nobody should be defined by the worst of what they used to be. We ought to be defined by what we aspire to be. Also, I want them to understand that experience will always prevail against an argument. That if I'm trying to persuade someone about the value of life, Self-determination and the values of, of America, when I believe in self-determination, I believe in pietas, patriotism, love of God, love of neighbor, love of country. And but if and there are those who are who are trying to destroy those values, I believe that the way you protect those values is to point to individuals who's using those values as the foundation upon which they are living their life. Mm-hmm. That's why I'm talking about when that that experience will always prevail against an argument, like what Jesus did mm-hmm. with the servants of John the Baptist when they came to him and said, are you the one or do we seek another? He didn't say, wasn't I born on Christmas or... Pull out his resume. He healed in their presence, and said, "Go tell him what you saw." Well, that's what we need to do. Are these values that this, upon what this nation, are they worth defending? Ask that person who was a drug addict, who spent time in prison, but God, through Jesus Christ, touched his life, and now he is a contributing member to his family and to his country. Ask him whether these values are of any use. The other legacy I want to leave that a witness is more powerful than an advocate. Hmm. If you want people to believe in the values, then live your life by those values. I've had gang members living in my home, and they have gone out to dinner with my wife and my, my children and my son and his family. So they saw two generations of people sitting at a dinner table in a restaurant having dinner. I had five of them at one table, and I've done this several times. So they need to see what a family looks like. Well, but... and so we need to we need to witness more to people, and stop preaching to them. People want to see a sermon; they're tired of hearing sermons. So everything in our life should be in the service of helping people to be all that they can be. Mm. But one other final thing that I want to say is that in order to do that, you have to empty yourself of self-importance. Mm. Hmm. It's a cleansing process. Hmm. I tell everybody I have on my wrist a Mickey Mouse watch to remind myself to don't take myself too seriously. Whenever I'm on a television show or I'm being honored, which I don't like that much. I remind myself that I'm a stand-in for the least of these. That mother who's raising her children in a homeless shelter has accomplished a lot more than Bob Woodson has. And so I hope whatever whatever acknowledgement that I get that I can use it to promote heroes among the least of these. Wow.
1: Wow. Outstanding. I am so inspired, and I thank you. This has been a a, a great time listening to you again, and every time I I listen to you, I, I gain more insight and wisdom than I can use for my own personal life. So, Bob, I'm hoping that the people that are, Listening to this, that are seeing this, will will find the same treasures that I found in reading your books and listening to you. And uh, I just wish you well. I mean, y- you've done some wonderful, wonderful work, and I hope and pray that God continues to bless you, you and your family, and uh, you know that you continue to uh, to to lead like you're leading. Uh, you're leading. Well, policy. thank you so
2: much. I'm just blessed that He is keeping me alive for some reason. I don't know why. Because it was left up to me, I'd have been out of here years ago. Given the stupid stuff that I did as a young person. Well, he kept you alive to be on our
1: show, fulfilling the dream. That's what right. I'll <laughs> say. They all, I'll take ownership and credit for that.
0: So thank you Bob. for that.
1: Yeah. So thank you, and uh, we'll hope to see you soon again. And uh, you take care of yourself. And we look forward to again another <laughs> time uh, where we can listen and and learn. So thank you everyone for being uh, out there for us today. We uh, will sign off and uh, we'll look forward to talking to you again about those who in the community make, make lives, uh, make dreams come true in life. So thank you. Thank you.
0: Thanks for listening to fulfilling the dream with Wayman Brett, the podcast that gives you courage and confidence to fulfill your dreams. Discover the riveting personal account of Wayman's journey in his book. Fulfilling the Dream, My Path to Leadership and Finding Purpose Through Serving Others, available in print and audiobook. If you haven't done it yet, subscribe to Fulfilling the Dream wherever you get your podcast. Share this episode with others. If you think you don't know them well enough, do it anyway. Be bold. Make a connection. And if you have a powerful story to tell, let us hear it. To get connected, visit FulfillingTheDreamPodcast.com